If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. You are listening to the Coming Out Tapes, an audio archive of LGBT stories. I'm your host, Karis Bradley, and throughout this season, I'll be talking to lots of different people from the community about lots of different things connected to coming out. Okay, so we are currently sat in the, uh, quite a hidden space in the Victoria and Albert Museum that we had to go underneath a, a, a barrier for, so I feel incredibly cool um, with a uh, special guest this week, Dan Vo. So do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, hello everyone. Um, hello to you listening there. My name is Dan Vo. I am an LGBTQ coordinator here at the V&A Museum. We do uh, volunteer-led tours, and uh, I would personally identify as gay and my pronouns are he him his and uh, yeah we are at a very special beautiful location at the moment so you might hear a, a few sort of visitors walking by at the moment as well but just to put you s- sort of into a picture we're in a slightly darkened space and there's some beautiful stained glass windows opposite us but so we are kind of drenched in this golden light at the same time as well so yeah if that kind of puts you in a space where, where we are, that that's actually I think. Uh, yeah, if I uh, if there's like a long delay before I ask the follow up question, it's because I'm looking at these <laughs> ludicrously detailed windows. They um, are absolutely gorgeous. Yes. Do you know anything about them? I now that I mentioned them, I realise that I don't. But looking at them very quickly, I think you've got uh, a set of. Uh, you've effectively got two arched windows, but they're rather tall, and there are six effectively panels uh, and each panel has a different person in it at the bottom there's sort of religious iconography in the middle you see uh, I can see what look to be uh, images of artists likely to be just men um, because that would have been the the style of the time when the V&A was being uh, created but at the very top there are four women who are sort of allegorical so I imagine that there's uh, uh, industry uh, on the right-hand side. Um, they're he- holding things that sort of give away what they um, are. I think the one sort of uh, uh, second to the right as well, there's a sort of slightly mathematical symbol that they're holding as well, so that's probably science. So that, that's just a, a guess. <laughs> a lot of what uh, the, the team here do and what I like doing at the museum is just going in almost uh, without knowing what is in a cabinet or what's on the walls or you can look up at the ceiling as well this is a beautifully painted ceiling 
and not knowing much and sort of just challenging yourself to kind of have a think about what it could be. And I think that there's often sort of a, a, a threshold anxiety for people coming into museums where they think, oh, I, I feel like, you know, I don't understand that, so I won't approach it. Or I, I really like to go, you know what, let's just go in and look and look really closely and see what you see. And what you see is almost as valid and as important as what a curator might describe about it. And often, if you put the two together, you'll find that they're probably describing what you'd yourself also look for as well. So I think that's, a, uh, that's an important thing to start off with in the movie, making the collection accessible and just breaking down that barrier of expertise and sort of saying, you as a visitor, you can also come in and your thoughts are very important. But uh, when you do come in, you probably shouldn't slip under the... <laughs> the rope across the stairs like we did no. Dan has a pass so it's okay um, okay so we're going to talk a lot about the amazing work you do in museums in just a tick but let's let the uh, listeners get to know you a little bit more first so um, uh, you, when did you first come out to yourself do you think oh that is uh, getting further away <laughs> from <laughs> from uh, my memory point now. So uh, I am an 80s baby and I sort of came out to myself. Uh, I think the last year of high school in the very last semester, in the very last term, in the very last week, um, I'd kind of been toying with the idea of, um, I think you go through stages of trying to understand your own sexuality and for a period I was toying with the idea of am I bisexual? Uh, I went to a Catholic boys school and so if you can kind of imagine how toxically masculine that can be uh, in terms of just the bullying that happens between uh, the boys and also just the, the whole structure of sort of a very Catholic um, uh, institution, uh, I think it really created a lot of internalised homophobia within me. And for the first sort of few years of my high schooling, I was already starting to have... Uh, feelings or attractions to the other boys in class but massively suppressed it because of all the things that I was surrounded by so I think that um, it took quite a long time to get to the journey but I think when I finally started to go to the understanding that there is life beyond high school I just went oh no hang on I'm actually gay and I'm going to work with that and um, and I, I don't think my coming out to my family was much long after that either. So I think I came out to my mum almost within a month of coming to my own understanding of it. So yeah, it was uh, a really interesting time. Um, I ended up coming out to a lot of the boys at school as well who I sort of hung out with as a social group. And the funny thing is, is that I think within a few months each of us had also come out. So it turned out that we were all incredibly internalized. We've got this internalized homophobia. We're incredibly uh, afraid of being outed. But at the same time, we clung together because I think instinctively we just knew that there was something about all of us that um, connected us. There was, I, had, I was going through some follow-up questions, then you answered each one of them <laughs> in turn. It was good. For someone who had real panic in your eyes when I asked you that question. You had, you know, a full answer to it. Um, so you came out to your, your family not long after coming out. This was in the... So um, did you come out in person to your, your family? So I came out to my mum first. Uh, actually, I came out to my cousin Tony first because, you know, he was a slightly older cousin and 
in the Vietnamese family system, uh, there is a very clear hierarchy. You know, the first child looks after the second child, and uh, across the whole family, extended family as well, we actually give each other sort of uh, a ranking. So um, we know exactly where they are placed in the system. You know, you are the, the eldest son of aunt number six. Like, and so everybody has a very clear position in the family. So Tony was the cousin that was just above me in this, this, this structure. So I came out to him and uh, I think it was uh, after I'd received my school results. So I, I knew that I was probably going to get into a particular university in Melbourne. Um, and, and so there was this <laughs> sort of belief that uh, university would be this amazing you know, uh, moment where I'd turn into this beautiful flower. It took a lot longer for that to happen. But um, uh, yeah, I decided to come out to Tony first. And that came out all right. And uh, we ended up having an all-nighter pretty much where um, we were standing sort of in the street uh, at, you know, in the early hours of the morning in front of the university that I ended up going to um, where, yeah, I kind of just talked through all these different things that had been going through my head uh, while I was at school. Tony was straight, um, but uh, he'd also gone through a, a different Catholic boys' school, but still from the same um, style. And so he kind of, you know, knew what it was like to be in a, in a, in a place like that. Uh, relatively oppressive, but at the same time, you know, um, if you found an, uh, a niche, you could you could find a way of flourishing as well. Uh, but I think after I came out to Tony, by the time we got home, it was like five, six a.m. in the morning, and my mum was furious because I was still living at home at times. So why, 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 um, why, why, why are you? Why did you not get home? Uh, and so I ended up coming out to her at that point as well. Um, I sort of sat her down and went, all right, so I just told Tony this thing uh, and uh, now I'm going to decide to tell you too. So we sort of sat down on the, um, the living room and, yeah, I kind of went, so all this anger that you've got at me, would you still be angry if, or um, would you still love me if I was gay, I think was what I, I'd said um, <laughs> whilst at the same time uh, I had a, a Nokia 3310s a very old style of mobile phone it's sort of like a, a size of a brick and um, one of the indestructible ones <laughs> it was beautiful yeah yeah I loved it um, uh, totally indestructible I hate that we've now reached a point where you felt that you had to explain what that phone is <laughs> I feel so old well it also like the battery would last for like weeks and uh, but I yeah I remember like having one and also surreptitiously like trying to type a message to my friend going I just came out to my mum but like you know how um, you'd have to multiple type like to get uh, I don't know the letter E you'd have to oh no E was easy but it was like subsequent letters wasn't it it's every third letter so you had to go C would be like uh, 222 and yeah and so typing out that message under the table while I'm trying to tell my mum I was was coming out to my mum it was yeah slightly ludicrous but um, uh, I think it put me in a a position where, because I'd openly told her before I got to university, uh, even though university didn't turn out the way I thought it would, it actually still allowed me to explore my identity a lot more than had I not. And so that I don't, and and the 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 realization where I was gay to the moment where I came started coming out was such a small time frame that I 
despite, of course, you know, living a, a, a dual identity at high school, by the time I got to university, I, I think that, that, that barrier to my own self-actualization had, had been dropped. So I think um, it put me in good stead. So did you enter university sort of out, or did you still feel like you were coming out to people when you were at uni? Uh, so I ended up doing a business degree, uh, and everybody who does did the, the degree at the time were very, well, straight down the line. <laughs> um, they would turn up to class in suits and oh, wow. <laughs> with okay. laptops and that sort of thing. That's and <laughs> a hilarious image. I know. Uh, and, you know, they'd all come from really well-to-do schools as well, so they'd cluster together in, you know, these, these cliques, which, you know, I think I was one of the rare kids from my school to, to get to this, this, this university. Um, only a, a small percentage of us got in, um, sort of a very much a working class uh, school. Like it was, it was sort of a school that was uh, the high school was very much designed to s provide, I suppose, education access to you know families that may not otherwise be able to get in. So I think yeah, there was a f only a few of us. So I was already sort of. Um, a bit of a, an outcast by the time I got to university because I was not from the other schools. And uh, the other thing I used to do is I'd get a, I'd come to class sort of dressed up in like very... <laughs> I remember once coming in like uh, purple trousers and a purple shirt and uh, a vest with a beret on into this, you know, classroom full of <laughs> suited and tie, wearing ties. Um, uh, and everyone kind of being slightly puzzled, um, thinking I'd come from the arts department or something. And uh, uh, I think the, the, I had a, a, um, a friend, Tran, come up to me after class and went, you're gay, aren't you? And I was just <laughs> like, what was the giveaway? She went, she went um, well, you kind of look it, but also um, you were using a pink highlighter. I was like, the pink highlighter <laughs> was a shock to you? So um, it's it's... It was a, yeah, it was a interesting experience. I just, the image that I have in my head is like a painting of just like everyone with identical yellow highlighters in their identical suits with their identical laptops. And then there's just like you right in the middle, all in purple. I don't think I was right in the middle. I was probably on the side. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it was, it, it, I mean, it probably wasn't as uniform as I kind of, you know, the, the, the distance of years has kind of, um, it, I think it highlights, it latches onto certain images that kind of you fixate on a little bit more where, yeah. you know, this was uh, a slightly, I think uh, it was a slightly terrifying scenario for me, but um, um, I got through it. <laughs> Uh, do you have sort of any memorable coming out stories, either from like that time or, or other times in your life? It took a little bit of a while for my mum to accept my homosexuality. And I think uh, initially she, you know, I think she went through a phase where she was hoping it was a phase. Uh, or she assumed it would be a phase, uh, and I think probably about a decade later, and I'd worked for a gay and lesbian radio station as well uh, in Melbourne, and I've, my surname is a relatively rare Vietnamese surname. You know, there's lots of Nguyen's out there, Nguyen's, 
but vows are not as common. So if you kind of see a vow, it's, it sort of stands out to the Vietnamese community a little bit. And so being on a radio station, using my own name, uh, it became known within certain pockets of the Vietnamese community. And so I think within about a decade later, my mum sort of, um, and after I'd um, come to London back, she started telling me stories of how Vietnamese kids were coming out to their parents and my mum would get contacted through the Vietnamese network of, <laughs> of, of aunties um, and, and they would just say, so you've got a son who's gay, right? And she'd usually initially be hesitant going, yes, but uh, I think after a while it became this, this thing where they'd refer to her as sort of like, <laughs> what do I do if my son comes out as gay? So I think uh, she's sort of taken on this... Uh, interesting spokesperson-ish role in her own life as well um, and uh, and she also kind of um, she does do a very funny thing where she will, every time I come back to Melbourne she does spend like the uh, uh, on a particular day um, she'll just start reeling through all the, the, the gay lesbian people <laughs> she's met that year. It's like, oh I went to the market and this was this lesbian couple running the store and so <laughs> and all these interactions that she has so I think uh, it's funny, but I think deep down it's sort of a, a sign of acceptance as well. Um, and also an interesting sign that my mum has sort of developed a queer eye as well for, yes. <laughs> for identifying people as well. So Yeah, my mum is the same. Uh, she's a nurse, so a lot of the people that she works with are yeah. gay. And so she likes to tell me about the conversations that she has with them. And a lot of them are really nice, but then every so often... Uh, she like uses my sexuality as a way of saying things to people that she should not be saying Ooh. to people. So like she told one of her nurses that she thought he was a bit camp and he was like, you can't say that to me, I'm gay. And she was like, well, actually my daughter is gay and you would not believe the look on his face because that <laughs> told him and I had to be like, mum, you shouldn't be telling people that they're too camp and don't use me as an excuse to do it. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. I like the idea that your mum is like yeah. collecting Vietnamese gay people. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's one of those things as well where it's a very patriarchal society. Historically, it wasn't. Uh, historically, you know, the women play a very important role in society as well. But I think, you know, we also spent a thousand years under the, the Chinese imperial system. And so that changed the way society was structured. Um, so yeah, when I grew up, it was very patriarchal, and um, so there's another kind of structure of toxic masculinity uh, that was existing in my life as well. But um, yeah, I think there are, you know, the magic of social media, the magic of the internet means that if you're Vietnamese and gay now, it's possible to find other people who have those similar life experiences as well. Um, and then I think going through history, reading through um, historical accounts and actually not looking at it with a sort of heteronormative bias, you kind of start to go, oh, hang on. So this, this person here, there's something here that you know, needs to be drawn out a little bit more. There's, there's a historical Vietnamese person who had same-sex desires or um, is exhibiting that in this particular story and and so I think 
again, with you know the ability to share those sort of stories as well, that's been quite uh, eye-opening. Um, you know, the existence of LGBTQIA plus people, however you want to label and name us, we exist across place, time, and culture, and while Vietnam itself, because we were a French colony, we didn't have the laws of buggery or sodomy that were introduced by the by the English across the British Empire, there was still the application of stigma from either neighboring countries or you know um, teachings that had come in by China, for example. Um, but also, I think, um, yeah, I think what has been interesting is seeing this frozen culture that my parents took out of Vietnam when they left in the 80s uh, via boat. So they were refugees that made it into Australia, but they sort of took that Vietnamese culture and froze it in their heads, and this is what Vietnamese culture is. But of course, while they're out in Australia setting up this new Vietnamese community, back in Vietnam, things are still going on and things are still changing. And while it was the country that was sort of recovering from a war, I think come the... 2000s and most prominently come the rise of Barack Obama and his installation of a gay diplomat into the Vietnamese uh, embassy, so the, the American embassy in Vietnam, having a, a gay man with a, a husband who is black, Ted Oshis, uh, black husband and two kids as well uh, it really challenged the Vietnamese sort of um, political uh, elite to kind of reframe their thinking about homosexuality as well. But I think um, it's a, just a... You're getting a really big rant now, but just... No, 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 it's good, it's good. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, that has come and gone a little bit because of the, the reverse influence of Trump in America and therefore across into Southeast Asia as well. But... What was particularly beautiful for me was in about 2014, in my mum's high school, in her town, which is Ganta, which is sort of one of the bigger provinces in the Deep South, in her high school, there was the biggest show of pride in that area in that year. And what they did was they actually went into a high school, uh, I think there's about three stories, they went to the very top of the building and they unfurled a huge rainbow flag. And a remarkable number of people, like thousands of people came to show their support for this. And that was in her province, uh, which um, to think that, you know, what I had received as understanding of what this of what the Vietnamese culture is like and then seeing that it had moved on and changed and then there's this amazing show of, of, of pride in the very area that where my mum grew up. I think that was, um, that, that was a, you know, a moment of hope, uh, a moment of understanding that um, yeah, there is an opportunity for even in these oppressive structures for there to be uh, new generations that can come up and change, challenge things, change things and actually um, 
make people feel safe to come out as well and feel uh, safe to celebrate their, their identity very, very publicly. Um, so just to, I kind of feel like you've maybe sort of answered this question already, but just to kind of conclude this bit of the interview, um, so what do you think coming out kind of means to you? I mean, coming out is something that we do every day. We never stop doing it. And it sometimes it's this, the codes and signals that we sort of build into the fabric of our clothes, you know, <laughs> or the, the highlighters that we use. Um, those are acts of coming out in a way. Um, being yourself simply is an act of coming out. And then, yeah, so every day, so every day we are sort of in a process of coming out. And I think the, the, the important thing to remember is that we have control of that as well. Um, sometimes it's... I think, yeah, you don't always have to be completely out to everyone every single minute of the day because that can be tiring and exhausting. And sometimes not safe to be so. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's always in the context of, of what's going around you. You know, put yourself... Put your, your safety first uh, and then the safety of loved ones around you and your friends uh, and then you know um, the public around you I think it's the that's the public service announcement from you know aeroplanes you know uh, put the mask on yourself first before you <laughs> the mask so I think, I think the process of coming out you know, is is inevitably something that you, you have to do every day, but I don't think you have to um, just do it if it's safe. But it can also be a wonderful, euphoric sense of self-understanding, self-actualization to, to be able to get to a point where... I mean, to be able to get to say those magic words, to be able to take ownership of those words, to be able to own your identity, own yourself, and be yourself. <laughs> I know I said that I wanted sort of atmosphere. Yes. It's just hot air that I'm blowing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least we've got an outtake, I guess. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I think there's also the thought that coming out can be a political act. The Harvey Milk theory that, you know, um, us 
as individuals, we have a vote. But then if you are able to open it up and say to your family and say, you know, um, I'm thinking about the Australian same-sex marriage debate now. Um, you know, if you went home and you said, look, I'm gay and it may not mean anything to you to to vote yes for same-sex marriage, but it means a lot to me. Will you do that for me? Uh, suddenly your vote is amplified by your family and then amplified by your friends and then amplified by your community. Suddenly that vote, that depending on how you want to count it, you know, uh, queer people I think in this country represent, like statistically represent 5% or something, but, you know, how, how accurate can a census be? Uh, I think in Australia it's slightly higher. It's probably about 10% or so. But a 10% vote, Increasing, and you know, I acknowledge that within the, that ten percent, not everyone wanted to vote for yes. But uh, for those who did want it, you know, they were able to amplify their message and get it across, and and that represented a an overwhelming landslide victory for same-sex marriage in Australia. So, and that really is the Harvey Milk theory that yeah, if your your hope will never be silent, and so your act of coming out gives hope to others. So uh, you run LGBT tours at the V&A and then also have been uh, organising and helping and advising on tours sort of in other museums in the UK. Um, so maybe could you tell us a little bit about your projects, um, how they got started, how this one got started? The V&A was the start point for me in terms of all that activity that I do and it, there were a few sort of things that had simultaneously happened that sort of led to this wonderful moment that we were able to do these LGBTQ tours here. So I acknowledge the publication of Richard B. Parkinson's A Little Gay History at the British Museum. That was an incredibly important point in time for museums because there was a national museum putting it, you know, in a, in a publication that you could take home and look through. Uh, that was significant. The V&A here had a working group that had been in existence for, you know, before I arrived uh, here at the museum. Um, and they'd put out a booklet called Out on Display. And so that was a, a booklet of about 10 objects across the collections that had LGBTQ relevance. And we had a Friday late that was queer-themed for the first time in a long time here at the v So I sort of pieced together these three things and ran into... Uh, the volunteer manager Katarina's office with the book and with the little booklet and said look at these two things we should be doing tours where we connect up all these objects you know because the, the goal was to get people into the lecture theatre or into different spaces in the museum to see a dance or to see uh, a performance a poetry reading or a book reading for example but before they get there why don't we show them a few things and so we'll cluster up people at the entrance and then we'll get them to where they need to go but we'll will actually show them these touch points in the museum that show that LGBTQ people have existed throughout history, across place, time and culture. We're not bounded to any specific, you know, there's no queer corner of the V&A. There's a few very queer corners, but there's no specific queer corner. And so we can go into almost any gallery and find a story or stories to share. And so that's, that's what um, allowed us to start. And the, the magic of... Friday late programming is, is often you'll pitch it to the coordinator and they will uh, be very grateful because they just want to get programming in. I mean, um, Friday late programmings are very clearly planned well in advance, um, but 
because it's such a big, exciting event with so many people, to have as much in that you know, particular event as possible, um, they'll, they'll always take that chance and um, that opportunity. So that's how we were able to start. And I think um, it, it was a slightly small group of people that came initially, but we kind of recognized that there was interest. And then we said, well, why don't we just go for a hard launch and commit ourselves to doing a regular program? Because the whole point is to say that this is a regular embedded program. There's no point sort of doing this one-off thing and then forgetting about it or just saying, oh, tick, we've done it now. Um, we've catered to that community. Um, you know, we didn't want it to be a tick box ex exercise. You know, uh, just because the Friday late that was queer had happened didn't mean that we weren't going to stop being queer. So we said, can you give us this slot, four o'clock, last Saturday of the month, just an hour, and we'll do these tours. We put it out on social media, and the first time that we... Wow, that's looking very serious. I was going to say, someone has just hurried out of the room, putting on glasses, wearing a white coat, carrying a leather bag. Like, I think that that person is going to amputate someone's leg. <laughs> We've just fallen back in time and we're about to witness like a Victorian surgery. We, uh, yeah, we're here at the opening of London Design Festival as well. I'm, I'm sure there's some amazing performance yeah. going on out there as well. So we put it out on social media. We said, we're going to do this tour. And uh, on that particular day, it was just Glyn and me. And I thought uh, Glyn should lead the tour. And we were there with about 10 people in the, the meeting point where we met today. Um, at Cromwell Road entrance and um, we were just standing there looking at these 10 people having a quick chat and we said right Glenn's going to, to take you on the tour now and Alexander McQueen was on at the time and uh, the lines for Alexander McQueen were always huge and so we were all sort of in the same space and the person sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said sorry are you going to take us as well I was like oh you're here for the tour and what I thought had been <laughs> the line for Alexander McQueen turned out to be about 100 people all Amazing. waiting for us to start the tour. And that's kind of, that was it. From that moment on, we didn't stop because we, you build it and they will come is, is one thing, but also, uh, yeah, the, the demand is, is, is massive. And, you know, we did one last week. We had five guides on shift on the same day, all volunteers, and they led their own personal tour so we can go literally into five different spaces in the museum and be able to share all these wonderful stories with a very personal aspect to it as well. They'll contribute some of their own lived experience, they'll contribute some of their own passions, what they love most about the collections. And so you get this, this wonderful, very personal journey. But at the same time, uh, as a team, we really work hard to make sure we represent well. So what does that mean? That means we do the full spectrum of LGBTQ. We make sure that we include the stories of people of colour, the stories of women, the stories of trans women as well, because trans women are women. That's something that the entire team subscribe to and believe, and that's something that we make sure that is clearly presented. And at the same time, I recognise that there's probably gaps in our team that we need to increase. Uh, we need better representation within the team in order to get better representation in the objects that we present and therefore better representation in the people, the audience that comes to engage with us. So we are doing quite a few uh, sort of bespoke 
tours, but also private tours as well to engage with charities who will be able to help us increase the numbers of specific things that we're looking at uh, to to bolster the team. And so in the next sort of six months, that means uh, we're going to be providing signed uh, tours and also uh, we're looking at how we can do touch tours as well. Trans people will be given uh, a priority. Uh, working class people will be given a priority. Uh, people who've never really accessed arts collections before, um, you know, they'll be given support and training to be able to confidently go in and say, you know, this is what I see. Uh, and also uh, people of colour. And we're going to link up uh, a few different um, groups that we've been engaged with as well. So we'll be looking at younger people um, up to the age of 25. And also we've got uh, groups that um, are much older as well. So, you know, uh, retired people. And we're going to try and foster as much sort of cross-cultural learning as possible. So that might be to, you know, team up the young person with the older person and, and see what comes out of that interaction. So how, how, does, how do, has any of your volunteers sort of build a tour? So we go through a, a training program where they are given sort of a big overview about how they can look at the collections. So we have sort of a criteria of the object should be LGBTQ or the subject should be, or it's something that communi the community itself has looked at and went, I can see my story in that. So that keeps it quite open for them. Uh, so there is a degree of interpretation. So they, they're given the understanding that they can provide interpretation, but they're also given the understanding that they've got a support network behind them, that the, the, the coordinators like myself uh, or the staff, the curators who will, you know, uh, check through notes and go yes no want to rephrase that or you want to uh, go read that book because you'll get a better understanding of that the nuance of that particular story so there's that's uh, the training they then get a mentor that they will work with over the course of for some it's three months others it's a whole year um, I think uh, as we uh, build up the team uh, the, the ability to have people who are researching for a longer time as possible. Uh, and then the commitment then is for that they commit to sort of about eight tours a year, which is about eight hours of your life, you know, across a year. But the reward being, you know, you, you get to access the collection, you get to be involved with the museum, you get to meet we are the, the front-facing team of the museum. We are, you know, we can, we, we are right there with the audience. And so the feedback that we get is instantaneous. You know, as soon as you say something, you can see somebody's eyes light up um, when they hear a story that they connect with. And that, I think, is just one of the most rewarding things you can do. I've worked in radio for many years. You never see eyes lighting up because that's the nature of the medium. And to be able to say something... Um, a, a, a remarkable, wonderful story that means something really special to you and then see people go, oh, I think that's really special. Um, so part of this tour and then also like a lot of the your sort of social media presence is finding stuff in museums and then kind of tweeting about it and mm. its connection to LGBTQ history. Um, but a lot of stuff that you talk about exists 
existed or was created in a time and a space where the language that we use now was not the language that they used, either because it's from a different culture, which has different ways of describing sexuality and gender, or a different time period sort of before uh, these kind of words existed. So how do you kind of talk about those objects um, and how, how do you really consider someone to be gay from a time and a place where that word just didn't have that meaning? Yeah. So I kind of, yeah, hinted at that before where I said um, we would say queer now. Historically, that's a troublesome word. Uh, it was once a, a slur or a curse word, um, a derogatory word aimed at people. Uh, but then going back in time as well, yeah, there were... Michelangelo himself wouldn't have had a concept of what do you mean by gay or um, homosexual. So, but I think he would have understood the concept of desire and love. Uh, and so sometimes we can approach it just very simply on that basis. There are... <coughs> if I can expand the discussion out slightly to thinking about the collections at the University of Cambridge Museums, where we do tours there as well. So we've got the Polar Museum, which we're talking about zoology, uh, the Zoology Museum as well. So we're talking about uh, there's things like penguins and uh, animal homosexual behaviour. Um, but I think I wanted to talk about the Polar Museum in order to talk about some of the uh, Arctic communities that we talk about. Uh, I believe in the Inuit language, there is no sort of gendered pronouns. There's no he, she. Uh, and they don't even have a word for homosexual. Uh, so written down in history, there's, there's no sort of, it's not as easy to find and search for. Uh, I think in more modern times, there have been descriptors for it, uh, which is two hard things rubbing and two soft things rubbing. But also, if you look at, in the way that the community is structured, there were individuals that would take on roles within the community that were non-binary. And so in order to be able to understand that terminology, we've got to place it within a context of the colonial period, the colonial contact, and the application of binary terminology uh, not just in terms of gender, not just in terms of sexuality or um, so many other things, but that colonial contact applied what was this sort of Anglo-centric way of cataloguing, in quotation marks, scientifically, the rest of the world. So I think that... Um, at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge as well. Um, the remarkable thing about the research that I'm able to do now with them is that they will be able to, they have regular engagements with the community in which the artifacts are from. And so there is a lot of uh, advice and guidance. And I think that the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford as well does this as well where that engagement is crucial it's sort of very much the same idea that if you were queer you wouldn't want other people to tell your story without you being able to contribute to that storytelling um, and so I think that that's an important aspect of it as well where uh, we will ask 
the communities to provide that framework that allows that story to be told and and it, and a lot of that really does uh, rely on that understanding that it was that colonial contact that um, uh, that that needs to be broken down first. One of my favourite objects here at the V&A is one that is important to me as the son of refugees. It's the refugee flag and it is designed by a woman who is a Syrian refugee. Uh, she made it to Amsterdam. This is Yara Sayed. She made it to Amsterdam and became a professor of design and designed the refugee flag. You may have seen it at the 2016 Olympic Games where it was flown to represent the six athletes who had it was part of the refugee nation. So it's bright orange, like a life jacket. It's got this black stripe sort of down the second third of it, a solid black, black stripe, which has been described as sort of being the buckle that secures that safety um, garment to the, the refugee, the important life jacket that, you know, especially if they're going to be crossing uh, treacherous waters like, uh, you know, I, my mum was a boat person. That's what we... Uh, we, I self-identify as, you know, she calls herself a boat person. The life jacket would have been amazing, but they didn't exist in her time. So, you know, that that is, it is such a good emblem for a refugee nation. But also, uh, that black stripe represents the borders that are traversed and travailed, sometimes at great lengthy times uh, before they can find a new home and seek asylum and gain refugee status. Uh, I know for my mum personally, it was about six months before she was accepted into Australia. So, you know, there's this period of just nationlessness. And that's what the flag represents. And it represents some millions of people across the world where they're currently in that journey. For me, that also represents the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of individuals who are fleeing the countries where it is illegal to be homosexual. There are 70 countries in the world where it's illegal to be homosexual and I was about to say five, but thanks to Brunei now, it's six countries where it's punishable by death to be homosexual as well. But to break down that number of 70, it, more than half of them are Commonwealth countries and so there's the legacy of the British Empire and there's that law of buggering sodomy that was spread across the world rearing its head again. Now, we are beyond the, well, I'd like to, we're not quite beyond, so, so we're supposed to be in a post-colonial era. The structures of post-colonial, of the colonial era, the structures of the colonial era still exist. You know, we're still living through that legacy at the moment. This is one of those things that we're still living through. Uh, so I think the, the part of what we get to do when we say we exist across place, time and cultures, we get to take the the past and say, look at that, all of that richness of diversity before the colonial binary came along, that structure of looking at the world in, 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 in a monochrome, and um, how do we address that legacy? But how do we do that by standing with the people within those countries that want to change those laws? So it's not right for us to go in and say, oh, this is, you should now be, you know, decriminalizing because we believe that is so. 
we should be going in and being an ally to the communities within those countries and, and helping support um, their fight as well. So I think really that is just a call to arms to everybody who comes to the tours. To how do we take our past, look at it in the present and look at how we can change the future together. So I think that that's, that's some of the, uh, the that's, for me, that's the, if you take just that away, if you change the way that you think about how you can change the world, because obviously one thing that changed in Britain did bleed across the rest of the world. Possibly, you know, we can help in this heavily connected social media world, we can certainly help change laws, change lives. And sometimes that's just within our own cities as well. So get involved with places like Kaleidoscope Trust, for example, where they are actively involved with uh, helping to change laws around the world. Or the... Um, Lesbian and gay immigration group. Uh, there's there's you call gig. I don't know. <laughs> yes, no UK idea. lesbian gay. There yeah, we go. Yeah. I don't, I, am I supposed to say that acronym as a thing? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, know. Um, and then there's lesbians and gays support the migrants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great groups that are, you know, throw them support, get involved with them, um, and so that's the thing. Yeah, what can you do? And it's. It's not so hard. Just start with little steps. But we, yeah. I think if you'd cut it a little bit earlier, that probably would have been a better, a stronger end. Well, I'll send you some options. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to wrap up, do you want to do some plugs? So how can people find out uh, how to come to the tours or to volunteer for the tours or where can they hear more about your future projects? Sure. So the V&A has... The VNA has a website where we corral all the LGBTQ things into it. So just Google search VNA LGBTQ and you'll find details about, uh, you'll see the booklet that has about 20 or so objects. You'll see um, some of our terminology that we use in our search and collections database, which is essentially if you want to, you know, uh, to search the collection for objects that you, um, you know, um, you know, the the team here have put a lot of effort into making sure words like lesbian, when you search that, it actually returns relevant objects. Um, so gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, you can throw so these words into the... It's not just all pottery from Lesbos. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it used to be, but it's not anymore. Um, and it used to just be gender and sexuality was the term that you'd have to find and you just get this small cluster of objects that meant nothing. So that's, you know, that's... a a crucial document um, uh, but also I think if you just jump on social media I'm on at Dan Nouveau like the French art form Nouveau uh, and uh, it's not just at the V&A we do tours in Cambridge there's tours that are happening in Oxford as well so there's Bridging the Binary in Cambridge there's Beyond the Binary in Oxford uh, Pitt Rivers Museum the British Museum has just started doing LGBTQ tours as well the Museum of London will soon do LGBTQ tours I'm working with Amgwedfa Kimri the National Museum Wales to uh, start tours in 2020 as well so so there's a lot of things happening. I think the landscape is massively changing. It's a very exciting time. I think that um, this idea of providing volunteer-led program, volunteer programming that is embedded in the permanent schedule means that 
I think in uh, very soon you'll be able to, you know, you might just be able to hop from museum to museum and be able to get queer programming in every single location. for listening to this episode of the coming out tapes i have been your host karis bradley and i would like to say thanks to scary boots for the artwork which is available to purchase on redbubble michaela moody for the music and alex lathbridge of the smart material collective for his support of the project if you want to get involved please tweet at us as we'd love to hear your thoughts comments and questions if you liked this episode subscribe and leave us a review or recommend us to a friend because it makes a big difference If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.